Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 28, a fantastic interview, a book club almost, with Rena Rosner. Yes, we were going to do a myth movie night, but then we interviewed Rena and we were like, oh, dang, no, we got to talk about this book instead. Yeah, we talk about storytelling, about badass women scribes, about heroines in stories, about Jewish mythology and storytelling. It is a fantastic interview. I am so stoked that we get to run it. And Rena's book, The Light of the Midnight Stars, is now out. So you can pick up a copy of that as part of the Spirits Book Club. Do it. There's a link in this episode. Scroll down real quick. There's the link. Click it. And speaking of Julia, more things we're excited about. People we're happy to welcome into our home. Taylor, Lindsay, Luis, Nix, Kate, and Penny, thank you so much for joining our Patreon. This is what allows us to do podcasts as our job and to keep making the show for you. So we greatly appreciate your support, along with our supporting producer-level patrons. Alicia, Allison, Brian, Deborah, Hannah, Jane, Jessica K, Jessica S, Justin Keegan, Nieselkins, Liz, Megan L, Megan M, Phil Fresh, Polly, Captain Jonathan, Malachi, Cosmos, Sana, Sarah, Scott, Skyla, and Zazie. Always makes me happy to see some new names in there. I'm like, ooh, new friends. Zazie, welcome. And of course, our legend level patrons, Audra Drew, Jack Marie, Key, Lada, Morgan, Necro Royalty, Renegade, Sammy Todd, and BM Yep Scotty. All wonderful people. All delightfuls. So Amanda, speaking of uh, new delightful things and people and humans and stories in your life, uh, what you been listening to, watching, reading lately? I just really enjoyed a new fiction podcast called Gods and Lies. It's contemporary fantasy where humans live at the whims of gods and goddesses and someone accuses someone else of murder. And that as you might imagine, does not go well. So I highly recommend it. You can go to realm, R-E-A-L-M dot F-M um, to check out more about the company who made it, Realm, and the show Gods and Lies, or find Gods and Lies in any podcast app. That sounds great. I'm going to subscribe right now. And also... If you didn't know, we have been doing some digital live shows over the last year, over the pandemic, and it's something that we find really fun. We love that people from all over the world can attend, even though we haven't visited, you know, like Finland yet. Finland, I know you are super, super ready for it. I promise you we're going to try to have physical live shows when it's possible again. But in the meantime, you can go to multitude.productions slash live for tickets to upcoming digital live shows from the various podcasts in the Multitude family and replays of past ones. So Julia, and I will be in an upcoming show for Join the Party. It's going to be a superhero-y one-shot set in Lake Town City, our fictional metropolis in upstate New York. And I cannot wait. It's been super fun. All of that, multitude.productions slash live. I love doing live shows. They're so much fun. Me too. Well, with that, everybody, please enjoy Spirits Podcast episode 228, Spirits Book Club with Rena Rosner. We are delighted to be joined by Rena Rosner. Rena, welcome. Please let our, our folks know who you are and what you write. So my name is Rena Rosner. My debut novel is titled The Sisters of the Winter Wood. And my next book comes out really soon, less than two weeks now. Um, it's called The Light of the Midnight Stars. And they're both fantasy novels with based on Jewish mythology and folklore in a nutshell. I'm also a literary agent at the Deborah Harris Agency based in Jerusalem, Israel. Yeah, I have five kids and a pug and there's all sorts of other stuff about me, but that's the juicy stuff. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. Of course, our pleasure. We do need to know your dog's name, if you don't mind. It's very important. It's actually Pablo Picasso Neruda, because I couldn't decide if he was a Picasso or a Neruda. So he's sort of like a poet artist dog. Delightful. I love that. So beautiful. (laughs) Top marks. 
So for our listeners to kind of entice them, because obviously after hearing this episode, they're going to want to buy your book. But can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. Um, actually, there was like a review that just came out, which described it in the most wonderful way. I, that's why I love reviewers, because sometimes they say <laughs> things and I'm like, that's exactly what my book is about. I had no idea. Going to borrow that. <laughs> But it was a school library journal reviewed as actually a starred review, which is very exciting. And it said it's a story about dragon riding rabbis and their fire breathing daughters. And I was like, that's delightful. It's exactly it. Of course, it's about more than that, but it's a really good one liner. Um, and I think I'm going to use it a lot. <laughs> it's also a story of tragedy and loss. There's a lot of sadness to it, but it's also kind of based on a lot of Jewish history, even though it's a sort of alternate history and my own take on, you know, what might have been an imagining of what might have been. It's a story of three sisters who each have different magical abilities who come from the line of King Solomon himself and what that would look like if that was such a thing. Um, there are things in Judaism where people trace their lineage from the Kohanic, you know, and Levite dynasties and like it's even been like genetically sourced people couldn't and so it wasn't such a far-fetched thing to be like but what if there were these people who had magical abilities from king solomon because there's all these things that king solomon supposedly was able to do there's a million different reasons which i'm sure we'll get into where the book came about from and there are a lot of different kernels that all sort of came together but i think that's in a nutshell what it's about can you tease a little bit of the powers that they have from king solomon because i know you pulled them from like existing sources of you know historically or in the mythology the powers that king solomon had can you give us a little teaser of that so Usually when people think about King Solomon, um, they think about an ability to talk to animals, an ability to make things grow. And when I did more research into like, what are some of the other abilities or what were some of the things that he was known for? I also came across with this kind of ability to chart and read astrology, like to chart the pattern of the stars or even to move the heavens or to control the weather. And so one of the sisters doesn't really talk to animals. She sort of more shapeshifts, which was the thing that was in the Sisters of the Winterwood. And I really wanted to continue that as a trend. I don't know if it will be in all my books. I love the idea of shifters. There's a lot in the book that is about like shifting, changing your name, changing who you are, you know, telling a story and then telling it again in a different way and how we transform ourselves through stories. And so all those things sort of like, you know, are a part of that and why I'm I'm intrigued by that. So that was where the animal. So one sister can sort of control fire, but she can also sort of shapeshift into animals. One sister can chart the pattern of the stars, astrology, you know, read the future in the heavens and the third sister can make things grow and you know control like the gardens earth all different types of an ability to connect to plants and nature that sort of thing very cool i also know that the story takes some inspiration from the romanian myth of the solomoners can you talk a little bit more about that so the book began because my grandmother used to light candles in a closet and i never saw it happen my father and his sisters though swore it happened and as she got older and by the time i came along she didn't do it already. The candles had moved to the center of the table and she sort of denied it ever happened. But my father and his sisters still remember. And so I started to look into like, why did my grandmother light candles in a closet? And like the natural normal thing is that you would think in, in Judaism that she would have been of maybe Spanish and Portuguese descent, a converso, the Spanish Inquisition, something like that. But there was no trace of any of that in my family as far as we knew. So I started down this rabbit hole and I knew she came from Romania. And so I started to try to figure out, and there'd been genealogy done on like almost every other part of the family, but not her side. So I was sort of doing my own genealogy and trying to figure out, okay, but 
Because the story of Judaism is always like, but where did she come from before Romania? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So I was like, okay, but before and in the end, as far as I can tell, and from the research I was able to do, she actually came more from like the Hungarian Empire, which it's not Hungary. Parts of it were Wallachia, which is partly Romania. Parts of it were today Slovakia. But that whole region was sort of part of the Hungarian Empire. And I never knew that Jews um, were sort of kicked out of Hungary in in the 1200s and even made to wear like a kind of badge, which um, was fascinating to me. So as far as I can tell, like there were Spanish and Portuguese Jews that ended up in Romania, but the majority of the Jews, it seems like, came in flight from Hungary. And so that was sort of like where I ended up. So then I started to say, okay, well, what are the what are the myths? Like what's what is the surrounding? And that's when I came across the myth of the Salmonars. To answer your question, that was a little long winded. <laughs> No, I like it. <laughs> so the Solomonars were a kind of, a, it's somewhat of an anti-Semitic trope. There were these red-haired mountain men and women, but usually men, who could control the weather and rode cloud dragons in the skies and carried a book. And there were all these things, you know, about them. And if you do research into it, it's sort of like, it was sort of an anti-Semitic trope. And what I did in, in The Sisters of the Winter Wood was I sort of played with a different anti-Semitic trope, like that of goblins, you know, and the things that sort of like Jews were accused of being hook-nosed and, and money-hungry and, and those sorts of things. And in my book, in that book, I sort of played with that. Like it wasn't the Jews who were that, it was these, you know, shape-shifting sort of creatures that tempted girls with fruit. <laughs> and so I wanted to play on another anti-Semitic trope in here because I kind of like had a lot of fun turning it on its head and being like, but what if we reclaim this and that sort of thing? Mm. So that was where this, the idea of the Solomonars and obviously King Solomon, okay, the you know, like I said, the Kohanic and Levite lineage, it's something that would make sense. And so I started to kind of play with all of that and be like, well, where would I set it? And who would the people be? And, and that sort of thing. So yes. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because a lot of times when we have authors on this show and they're talking about like mythology and stuff like that, they're talking about how like they're drawing from their own like backgrounds and mythology and then creating a world kind of whole cloth out of that. But you specifically are writing historical fiction, which I think is really, really interesting, like historical fantasy, which I feel like I want more of that. Mm -hmm. So I, I can see kind of the pathway that led you into the choice of writing something more historically based than creating a whole world whole cloth, which I think is really interesting. And I'm, I'm so glad that I get to hear the story kind of wind its way into that choice. It's, it's very, very cool. Was there anything else that you were like, I definitely want this to be at least somewhat historically based besides the, the story of your grandmother and kind of the idea like, where did she come from before? Well, yeah. So like I said earlier, I think that it is a kind of alternate history mm. because one of the things that I, I do in my work, and it's really important to me, is sort of inserting women back into the story. Because throughout history, and it's not just a Jewish thing by any means, right? But definitely, it's definitely a Jewish thing also. Women sort of disappear from the story. Even if you look at the Bible, right? The Old Testament, there's like Abraham and Sarah and, you know, Isaac and Rebecca. And then slowly, slowly, by the time you get to the prophets, there's like Deborah. <laughs> and then maybe in the Talmud, there's like Bria, and that's it. Like women just disappear from the story. And why? Because men were the ones writing down the stories. Very often when you do historical fiction, I think the only way to do it is to sort of make it up, which is why it's historical fiction. Um, and mine is even more, you know, take it a step further to historical fantasy. But I also sort of love the things like writers like Joe Walton do with alternate history, which is like, but what if it happened this way, you know? And so I sort of look for historical markers. And so I did find this Rabbi Isaac of Tirnau, who actually lived 100 years later than when my story takes place, who had 
three daughters, it seems, <laughs> from the research I was able to do. And one of his daughters sort of married this duke who converted to Judaism. And there's a story told about them. Is it true? Is it a myth? Is it a story that was passed down from generation? We don't know, you know, but I like the idea that this was a real person who existed. And the one thing we do have not from his daughters, but from him, was a book called, you know, The Book of Customs, which which he had written. And so I was able to kind of like read that and be like, okay, this was what Judaism somewhat looked like in the medieval era in this region, you know, and he was from that region. And it was the same region my grandmother hypothetically was from, right? So all of those things sort of came together. And I like latching onto a real story and to be like, okay, we think these people existed. This is when we think they existed. He he had daughters. What's their story? Like, that's the made up part, right? But it's all these things that sort of come together to be like, okay, this is a story I can tell with a fair amount of certainty, which is based on people that might have existed or that did exist. Um, and then I take it and make it my own. And I love that one of the sisters in The Light of the Midnight Stars is a woman scribe, which maybe wasn't as rare as I think it is, but reading it on the page still felt really electrifying and exciting. Right. So I think that in the absence of a son, it stands to reason that a rabbi might have had a daughter who took notes for him or, you know, a mother who was a healer, which very often Jews were. Um, and it's also why. So the book takes place in a sort of like the time of the Black Plague. I sort of take it to the place of like a black mist and I call it something else. It's sort of something that sweeps in, which is also sort of like a a take on, you know, hatred and anti-Semitism and, and a wave sweeping through Europe, right? So it starts to corrupt the trees first and then it, it enters your home. And so it was that also was a cross between sort of the Black Death and um, leprosy, which like biblical leprosy was something that can infect the walls of your home or the plants, the trees, you know, something that's sort of like insidious and starts to spread and then you can't control it. It definitely helped that we're going through like the global pandemic that we're going through right now because <laughs> I was like, oh, we know what this feels like <laughs> to have something insidious sweeping its way through Europe and then the rest of the world. Biological plagues, ideological plagues, right. there's just a menu to choose from. It stands to reason, though, a lot of like a lot of times Jews were accused of blood libel or Jews were accused of spreading the Black Plague. And, and sometimes that was because they had different customs. Right? Some people say that even like, going back to the Solomon, our story, that Jews would, we still do build these huts on the holiday of Sukkot. And we shake like long palm fronds and lemons, strange lemons at the sky and call for rain. Now it happens to be around the rainy season. So very often it does rain, right? But you could see how somebody would say, who are these strange people shaking things at the sky, praying for rain and how that extrapolates itself into, well, maybe there are these red haired mountain men that control the weather and ride cloud dragons. But cloud dragons are so cool, <laughs> you know? That's awesome. Cloud dragons are very cool. Also, that's quite a step from one to the other, but you know, it's it's the high Middle Ages. That makes sense. Yeah, it was really fun to kind of think about like, what if? And the truth is, is that a lot of women probably were illiterate, even Jewish women, you know, in this time period. But again, the only way we can write the story of the women who are sort of lost to history for us is to to sort of insert ourselves into the story and say, what if? Absolutely. I really like to, uh, not to get off track from Jewish mythology, because I'm, I'm always happy to talk about that, but your story is also very much inspired by fairy tales. Did you grow up with fairy tales as a kid? What was like one of the stories you remember like sticking with you? Absolutely. So like I said, this book, I'm always like, let me, let me start again and tell you how this book really began. <laughs> 
I like that. But that's actually really what my book is about, right? Because my book is about people telling stories and telling stories. And then you get to the end and you find out that the whole thing was a story that someone else was telling. And, and every character has a story that they try to tell to sort of tell their own story, you know. So yeah, so there's a lot of stories within this story. <laughs> so I had originally been writing a different book as my follow-up to The Sisters of the Winterwood. And my publisher was like, actually, we really want another fairy tale retelling. And I was like, okay, I can do that. And so I sat down with all these Andrew Lang fairy tale books, which I have because my mother used to read them to me. So I was born in Miami Beach, Florida. That's where I'm originally from. And I did spend about half my life there. But my family moved to Israel when I was a year and a half old. And um, we lived here for about five, six years. And then we went back to Miami. And when we lived here, because Israel has always had this sort of historical relationship with the UK and also just book people know like the way that foreign editions work is very often the the UK editions are the editions that make it to the rest of the world besides the US mm. in terms of like export sales. And so my literary agent side coming out. <laughs> I didn't know that then, of course, but a lot of the books that I was read to as a child were British books because that's what we got here in English. And so my mom would read these Andrew Ling, the Green Fairy Book, the Violet Fairy Book, the Red Fairy Book. You know, I don't even know how she she found them here and she would read to me. I actually had a loft bed that had a long ladder up to the loft bed and a window by my loft because we didn't have a fifth bedroom. So my parents sort of like made a fifth bedroom on the second floor of the house. And I was like five. So that was where I slept. And um, it was all very fairy tale like, though, because my mom would climb the ladder yeah. at night and sit on the bed with me and read me from Andrew Lang's fairy tales. And so I actually like later in life collected whatever I didn't have and have pretty much almost the whole collection, um, which are kind of rare and hard to find now. So I'm really glad I did that. <laughs> like I was just like, oh, these were my childhood books, not realizing like, oh, now they're worth a lot of money. <laughs> So the Violet Fairy book, there's a, a story called Boys with Golden Stars. That I remember being read to as a child. I was always like, huh, is this a Jewish story? Not to get back to the Judaism, but but it's there. You know, like what no, would that good. look like if someone's, you know, if there are boys who have golden stars on their forehead, the automatic association for me was like, oh, you know. And so I was also looking for a Romanian fairy tale because that's sort of, you know, part of where my family's from. It sort of began from there as well. I also, in looking into Romanian mythology and folklore, was totally fascinated by, and I'm absolutely probably going to butcher this, but like I think it's called Luciferol story, which is uh, Mihai Imanescu, who is a Romanian, I think he's poet laureate, or you know certainly one of the most well-known Romanian poets. There's a whole mythology about these Zmeu and Bailari, like these Romanian sort of dragon, sort of incubi, male creatures, mythological creatures who seduce young maidens in their beds, but are also meteors that fall from the sky. And mm. I was like, that's cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so boys with golden stars, what if boys that are stars, what if they're boys that fall from the sky, you know, and definitely like was inspired for sure by Neil Gaiman's Stardust, who, you know, there's a girl that is a star who falls from the sky. But I was like, but what if it was an incubi? And what if it looked like this? You know, and the story is that young maidens would, would kind of like meet these these men, be seduced by them and then be like inconsolable and wander the streets longing for this lost star. And so definitely one of my sisters takes after that and follows that story. But that alone wasn't enough. Like it all sort of built, you know, one myth upon the other myth and one story upon the other story. And I think in letting us rotate through the sisters' perspectives, it also feels like we're in three different tales, which is like within this kind of one wider universe, which is really exciting. I feel like I, I often feel lucky if we get like one female protagonist to follow, <laughs> you know, or the rich inner life that we get to experience. So the minute I see the second chapter switch perspectives, I was like, oh, fuck yeah, dude. Like, yes, I'm so excited. We love a switch perspective here on spirits. Totally. 
Oh, I'm glad. I mean, I don't, I feel like I don't know how to write any other way. Like I have a lot of different ways of getting at a story, but every story I've ever written has always had multiple points of view um, because I'm always like, okay, I'm going to take from this and I'm going to take from that and I'm going to take from that. And, and it's all going to come together to tell a story. I don't know why that's how I write. That's just how I write. <laughs> <laughs> why be limited to one perspective, you know? Yeah. I think it also structurally kind of reinforces what you were talking about earlier, which is like, you know, there are many perspectives on a story, ways of telling a story, every retelling changes a story, which is, to my perspective, a lot of Judaism is about, you know, safeguarding, transmitting and making sure that the stories stay alive. So how how did that kind of broader like context sort of inform this book in particular? Right. And it goes back to also fairy tales, right, which are told and retold and told in a million different versions Mm -hmm. and passed through the generations. You know, yeah, in Judaism, we have like this concept of the oral law. And at some point it was written down. But so much about, you know, our practice is about like, well, this is what my mother did. We've actually been talking a lot about it because it's Passover now. You know, and I was saying to like my daughter, I was like, you're going to do what I do probably just because that's what I did. You know, like you're going to cover your countertops the way I did and you're probably going to make the recipes that I make and you're going to marry somebody and he may or she or whoever you end up with um, may end up with different customs than your customs, but you're always going to go back to, and what I do has nothing to do with actual law. Like there's a million different ways to celebrate Passover. Depends on where you came from, but ultimately it always depends on like what your parents did, usually what your mother did, how your mother turned her kitchen over, you know, maybe your father, But I think that fairy tales are the same way. You always remember the story that you were told, whether, you know, that version you were told came from the Grimm, you know, or whether it was the French version or whether it was, you know, a Chinese retelling. Uh, There's so many different ways that fairy tales make their way and and fairy tale tropes make their way through the world that are told and retold as fables, as moral tales, as darker, less dark. And, And so there's just a lot that's similar. I grew up in a lot of like Hasidic you know, tales, Jewish stories. And they're actually like, they're miracles tales. Like they are Mm. fantasy, even though we tend to think that like there isn't a lot of fantasy in Judaism. There's a ton. It's just that we're not calling it by that name. There's often rabbis who make it from one place to another in a record amount of time, or which we call like, like they jump the path, or there are often people who are miraculously healed. Like that's also a miracle, right? They're, they're more like miracle tales, but they're still, that's still fantasy. You know, that's still magic of some sort or another. And that's something again, that just, it repeats itself in so many different ways. And, in, and this whole, the whole region of like, you know, um, the Hungarian empire, what's now Slovakia, but was, you know, at some point Czechoslovakia or, you know, and Wallachia, which was part of Hungary, but then not part of Hungary and all these shifting borders. But there still were all people who were sort of talking the same language, not in terms of language, but in terms of like the mythology and folklore that surrounded them, the trees, the flora and fauna, like all those things, you know, resulted in different versions of the same tales being told and retold. No matter what religion you are a part of, you see the same threads repeat themselves. Totally. There's culture of location, of family, of, you know, school friends, and all of them overlap to be something that is like every person is their own Venn diagram in that way. Amanda, I've been doing some spring cleaning of my closet lately, and there's some pieces in there that I absolutely love, but are just at the point where I need to let them go. I need to refresh my wardrobe a little bit. And thankfully, I had my Stitch Fix box delivered this month, and it was just the perfect timing for filling out those needs in my closet that I had to fill, right? So Stitch Fix is great because I can tell them exactly 
what I'm looking for. I can be like, hey, this month I need some jeans. I don't have any good jeans right now. And Stitchix is like, I got you. Here's like three different pairs of jeans that might absolutely delight you. I'm like, thank you, Stitch Fix. <laughs> and that's because Stitch Fix offers clothing hand-selected by expert stylists for your unique style, size, and budget. It's a completely different way and fun way to find clothes that you will love to wear. Every piece is chosen for your fit and your style. And it's the easy solution finding what makes you look and feel your best. You try your pieces on at home before you buy them. You keep what you love. You return what you don't. And and they have free shipping, easy returns and exchanges, and a prepaid return envelope is included. And there's no subscription required. I get my box every three months, but that's just me. You can try Stitch Fix once, or you can set up automatic deliveries, and you just pay this $20 styling fee for each box, which so long as you keep a piece, that $20 styling fee goes directly to that. And there's no hidden fees ever. So you can get started at stitchfix.com spirits, and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That is Stitch stitchfix.com slash spirits for 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. stitchfix.com slash spirits. We are also sponsored this week by Skillshare. This is an online learning community that is offering Spirits listeners a free trial of premium membership. This is somewhere you can go to take small steps, to take manageable classes, to watch really well-produced videos in order to learn a new skill to bring to work or a hobby or a creative outlet to, you know, try a new thing and surprise yourself. Julie, I know you've been really enjoying cross-stitching recently, and it's something that brings you a lot of joy. And maybe cross-stitching, maybe it's sculpture, maybe it's uh, gardening or watercolor. Lots of options for awesome stuff to kind of enhance your creativity and make you happy on Skillshare. What have you been doing lately, Amanda? I got very excited to see a class by one of my favorite poets, Hanif Abdurraqib, who had a class called Writing for Expression, How to Make Your Words More Artful and Lyrical, which I was like, wow, it's a writing class that is not exactly poetry. It's not about like prose or memoir or whatever. It's like how to express yourself in your writing, no matter what kind of writing it is. And I really enjoyed it. And I think he is a great, not just writer, but person talking about writing, which are two very different things. <laughs> so if you want your free trial of premium membership that Skillshare has set aside just for Spirits listeners, go to Skillshare.com spirits to get a free trial of premium membership. That is Skillshare.com spirits. Julie, one of my favorite sort of days of the year is the day that I can open the window in my bathroom and like have a nice, pleasant breeze as I shower. And when it is cold outside, it is far too cold. I get freezing cold because the window is like at the very top of the shower. It doesn't have a view or anything, but it does let in a breeze. And this morning I had a lovely breeze as I took a shower with a faint scent of eucalyptus Ooh. because I was using my function of beauty, not just shampoo, not just conditioner, but also body wash because I am fully converted. I love it so much. It leaves my skin feeling moisturized. It leaves my hair feeling, you know, really full and like not frizzy because those are my hair goals. But if you want to find out what yours are, you got to go to function of beauty and take their quick quiz. It is very, very easy. It is quick. It's like 60 seconds and makes a unique formula for you and for your hair specifically. There are over six 60,000 real five-star customer reviews on their website, I would definitely give them a five-star rating as well. And my favorite thing, as I've said before, is that you can decide not just the scent, but the level of scent you want or even unscented in your products, which is amazing. You can put your little name on the bottle. You can choose the color of the shampoo or conditioner or body wash. It's just like endlessly customizable, which I love. 
So you, like Amanda, can fully convert to Function of Beauty by going to functionofbeauty.com spirits to take your quiz and save 20% off your first order. That applies to their full range of customized hair, skin, and body products. That's functionofbeauty.com spirits to let them know that you heard about it from us and to get 20% off your order. Functionofbeauty.com spirits. And now let's get back to the show. Talking a little bit more about uh, kind of Jewish myth and legend and stories, like you were saying, I know that we've talked about like the golem on the show before, and I know that you can speak to like more myths and tales, especially since I know you've done a keynote that's literally titled Going Beyond the Golem. (laughs) Not to limit you to like just one or anything like that, because that would be ridiculous. But what are like some stories that you wish more people knew about on the same level as the golem? I think it's so easy to default to that because that's like what people, most people know. Mm -hmm. But there are so many more. I mean, one of the best books to like start with, I mean, it's at least the text that I referred to the most. It's called um, Sacred Monsters. One of the things I I like is that he's he's a rabbi who wrote it and he sort of goes through um, like a, a very traditional Orthodox rabbi who actually was sort of People didn't look too kindly upon what he was doing because there's this, I don't know why, like we have this thing in specifically Orthodox Judaism, because I can't speak to, you know, the other denominations as much, but that that magic left us, prophecy left us and we moved on and it used to be a part of our world, but it is no longer. And that's sort of the narrative that I grew up on. But I don't think that that's true. Like if, if you go back, not even too far. First of all, even like there are certain elements of Jewish magic that are alive and well, even in Israel, there are certain wise women you can go to who pour lead into water and read the shape of the lead or, you know, and there's stories in the 1600s about women who would read the shape of oil on water. There's all these words for these like geomancy and oleomancy and legolomancy and right. And there are treatises that were written by, by rabbis about like throwing sand onto tables and reading the pattern that that or casting rocks The one thing that was sort of like forbidden was blood and bone magic. Mm -hmm. Like that was considered like, that's not okay. That's what necromancers do. And so all of that's connected to like the different ways that like magic manifested itself in Judaism. With all of that, though, that's all also connected to the spirit world. Like there are so many different spirits like Shadim, we call them, or Ruach, Ruach Rafaim. Dibuks, right? And and so the Dibuk is another one of those things like the golem that a lot of people know, but there are so many different ways it can manifest itself. And beyond that, the what what the name of the rabbi is Rabbi Nassan Natan Slifkin, who wrote Sacred Monsters, he goes into like, but what were the animals? What were the mythology? You know, not beyond the Leviathan. I could have, re- it's the same <laughs> lecture I gave could have been, let's go beyond the Leviathan, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in the light of the midnight stars, I play with the idea of like the estri, which is a sort of like female vampire-like spirit. There's a book called Sefer Hasidim, which is like the, the book of the pious, which is a very well-known, doesn't exist in too many English translations. Most of the research I do, I do in Hebrew because I can. So in Sefer Hasidim, they talk about like witches who might have been estri, who are part werewolf, part vampire-like. And there's all this stuff about like, they have to tie their hair back and, and, and put a ring of salt around them or stuff earth into their mouths. And I'm saying all these things. And if you've read my book, you know where I'm going with this, right? (laughs) Like, and so again, I wanted to play with like, one of my characters is sort of accused of being an estri, but who's the real estri is sort of the person who does it to her. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, who's sort of like, her own kind of like black malevolent spirit or dragon-like spirit or estri-like spirit. And so if you go though into Romanian mythology, there is like the strega, the striga, the stragoi, like, you know, there's different names for for something that's very similar to that. So that's another creature that's a lot of fun to play with. And um, and then again, I played with the like, the zmeu, the zubari, I'm 
I'm sure I'm not pronouncing these right. <laughs> the Bailari, like these incubus-like, dragon-like fiery creatures. Well, in Judaism, there's also like dragon-like characters that are made of flame, that fly above the sky during wartime, that are mentioned in all these sort of like end-of-day prophecies, but also like are were actual supposed, supposed creatures that existed. And again, you see that interconnection of like there are these dragon myths and there are these dragon myths and then like well what if they met here and became the same thing mm. i don't think you have to dig too far to find a lot of other examples of jewish magical creatures of fantastical beasts and you know in judaism and i do wish people went a little bit beyond the golem even though the golem's super fun to play with take it to a place of like what if it wasn't like a mud man what if it was like a mud frog who wreaked havoc or, you know, like if you could make a man with mud, you could do a lot of things with mud. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that, you know? And I just think that people don't know where to begin because it's it was something that was sort of anathema to our culture. It was something that sort of the rabbis decided was no longer relevant. So we're not going to talk about it. And only the people who had access to these books, only the people who had the literacy to be able to read them, you know, the ability to, you know, it, they exist and they're still in print, right? But you have to be able to have access to them. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, I think people didn't or the the right kind of people didn't, you know, or the wrong kind of people did. And which is why they were sort of, you know, hidden away and, and just become something less talked about, which I think is really unfortunate. Yeah. Well, I look forward to reading many, many of your books in the future and being like, <laughs> ah, yes, I recognize that. <laughs> yes. One of the things that I'm working on now is, I, I don't know, it could be five years till this comes out because it depends on how long it takes me to write it and who knows what. <laughs> Um, it's not sold yet. There's this rabbi named Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav that a lot of people um, know and uh, sort of like an ascetic himself. And there are, but there are a lot of Hasidim that still follow him today and his teachings. He passed away at like the age of 40. He lived in like 1700, 1800s. He wrote fairy tales himself. There's a book of fairy tales that he wrote and they're completely original and they sort of predate like the Yiddish fairy tales that people know from like the, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s by about a hundred years. Wow. And they're completely original and they're like, there was a princess and she was lost and there was a king that went to go find her and like stuff like that. Like you really could read them. There's like nothing Jewish about them. And it's fascinating to me. And even more so, he published it in a bilingual edition, Hebrew and Yiddish, because he wanted women to be able to read them. And he also only had daughters. You see where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I'm really interested in sort of playing with that next. And I have started. Those are the things that really interest me, the confluence of like, where were women in history? Where do we fit into the story? What was our literacy like? You know, and not just as Jews, just like as women, you know, in mm -hmm. the world. And how may have that manifested itself in different ways? And, and like, where is our part of the story? How do we find the kernels that we can expand upon, you know, so that we can find our place in history, so much of which is lost to us. Amazing. I want to talk about eating the Bible because I love this concept. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about that and the story about the lentils yes. and what kind of led to? So there's definitely a theme in all of my work. <laughs> Before I wrote these novels. I had written other novels that have not seen the light of day. Maybe will, maybe won't. Who knows? I've been writing my whole life since I was like eight. Everybody finds their path to publication in many different ways. And so I was on this sort of circuit of like, well, maybe I want to be a journalist and maybe I want to write literary nonfiction. And, you know, so I worked in journalism for a lot of years and I started at the Jerusalem Report, which is a magazine. And then I worked at the Jerusalem Post and then the editor of that moved to the Times of Israel. And so I sort of worked for that anyway, while I was doing all of that and figuring out that I actually have no desire to work in journalism and certainly don't ever want to work in journalism in Israel because I cannot handle the politics. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, and there were politics, like even in the like fluff stories of let me write about like food, you know, um, there were always I asked if I could have a column where I connected the weekly portion of Torah that we read in the Orthodox cycle, we read the whole Torah, like one portion every week. I think that conservative and reform do different things. They they finish the Torah like every three years and whatever, but that's what I know. And I used to get really frustrated by the fact that like my husband would like pick up a book and like read something for five minutes and have something nice to share at the Shabbat table. And I would have cooked in the kitchen for like 17 hours and I would be like, I made a lot of food, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I was like, well, how do I bring some storytelling to the table? Like, how do I cook things that are from the Parsha that sort of the from the weekly portion that enable me to bring food to the table and have it become a conversation piece. So that was how Eating the Bible began. It was like a three-year column that ran. I wrote every week. Um, I created a recipe and uh, matched it to the weekly portion. And after about three years, I was like, I'm done. <laughs> and that sort of became the book Eating the Bible, which was translated into five languages, actually. It's amazing. And came out in like a special Barnes and Noble edition and all, all sorts of fun stuff. But you definitely can see the threads of that. I think in my novels, I love food. I'm a foodie. I love especially baking, but also all sorts of cooking. There's nothing that makes me happier than just like give me a kitchen stocked with ingredients and I will have so much fun. Mm. Um, and even when I'm stressed, like that's what I love to do. Like I stress bake all the time. I did this afternoon. It's Passover and things are complicated and things are just busy and crazy. And, you know, hello, pandemic. Um, <laughs> so I was like, I think we need some Passover chocolate chip cookies, which is literally what I just made. Fantastic. But I love experimenting with different ingredients and I love experimenting, you know, so so all of that, even the Bible sort of was something I never planned on. I never planned on writing a cookbook. I never planned on being a foodie. Actually, through the process of writing that cookbook, and doing all of the like PR that I did for it here because it came out in English first, but then it got, came out in Hebrew mm -hmm. here in Israel. And I used to have to show up at like recording studios at like five in the morning Ugh. with like 17 courses made, plated and ready to go, like in <sighs> Tel Aviv, which is an hour from here. I sometimes dragged my little children with me because I had like <laughs> no one else to watch them. And after that, I was like, yeah, I don't I don't think I want a career in food. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good, actually. <laughs> You know, it's like when people write novels, nobody asks you to like show up to a podcast and be like, read the new short story that you created just for us. Full makeup. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. In full makeup. I was literally asked sometimes to like create brand new recipes for certain magazines and TV shows. They'd be like, what? Bring us something that's not in the cookbook. And I'm like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> also, we're promoting the cookbook. Wouldn't you want a recipe right, yeah. from the cookbook? Yeah. So so eating the Bible sort of just happened. You know, like, I, will I ever write another cookbook again? Probably not. Um, just because I don't want to have to do those interviews again at five in the morning, like with all the food ready and made and plated that I'd been cooking for like seven days. Yeah, no. <laughs> Fair enough. Speaking of the publishing industry, you are also a literary agent. Do you see those different careers being a writer and an agent? Or I'm sure you're just kind of like swimming in books and writing at all times in all ways. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've been a writer and reader my whole life. And my first job was at a bookstore. I worked at Books and Books on Miami Beach, which is an amazing independent bookstore chain now. But Mitch Kaplan, who still runs Books and Books, gave me my first job when I was like 14. And it was like my sanctuary. What a gift. I worked there as many hours as I could all the time, all through high school. Um, and then even through college, like whenever I'd come home by college, I already worked at, you know, the local campus bookstore, which was like a Barnes and Noble book center. And then grad school <laughs> at McGill in Montreal, I worked at the bookstore. At a certain point, 
I think a lot of um, bookstore employees go through this. Like at a certain point, you're like, I either need to quit or I will be doing this for the rest of my life. And at a certain point, I was like, okay, I need to quit working in bookstores because it feeds my soul, but it also doesn't pay very well, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And so at a certain point, I stopped working in bookstores and was like, okay, we're going to do other things with with our time. I was always writing in the background. And so what are the jobs that are open to people who just like devour books for a living? You know, like just for in order to live, not for a living, but who want to do it for a living. I worked here as a grant writer. I worked as a journalist. I worked in all these sort of like other related fields until finally, I think I'd had my fifth kid. And... I was like, I'm bored. I need to go back to work. I always get bored on maternity leave. I'm on maternity leave. (laughs) We have, thank God, Israel is an amazing, we have 14 weeks maternity leave, paid maternity leave. Wow. Every maternity leave, I did different things. Like I started a jewelry business. I started sewing scarves. I started crocheting like yarmulkes, kippahs. Like I get really bored. Like I would just be like, all I'm supposed to do is nurse the baby. (laughs) Like that's it. (laughs) Which is ridiculous because you know, I mean, whatever. It's exhausting having children, but my mind is always working and I'm always reading and I've always been reading, you know, but I didn't really want to go back to work and just do more of the same. And I knew about, it's the only literary agency in Israel. It's also the premier one. Definitely the only one in Jerusalem. And my husband was like, well, what do you want to do? Like, if you want to go back to work. And I was like, I want to work at the Deborah Harris agency. And he's like, that's really specific. (laughs) And um, I used to pass the agency when I took my kids to the dentist. It was in the same building. It's no longer in that building. And I would just like sigh. And one day the door was open and I saw all the books and I was like, I want in, (gasps) you know. And finally, one day I just my husband's like, well, you definitely shouldn't apply because if you apply, they may take you. But if you don't apply, you'll never know. And I was like, shut up. (laughs) So like, I finally just decided to write an email. I sent my resume. They weren't looking for anybody. I'd always scoured to make sure I'd always look because I would have applied. And um, Deborah wrote me back like five minutes after I sent my email. And she was like, can you start tomorrow? Wow. (laughs) But That's because I had had like, I guess, you know, 10 years of a resume of places I'd worked and people that she knew in Jerusalem and, you know, people who were in the book world and who were in journalism and in writing and and that sort of thing. But also Israel just has a way of doing that because it's such a small country. Like when you bring a certain skill to this country, there is a way to find a way to use it if you connect to the right person. And that was sort of what that was. And she also was like, why didn't you come here 10 years ago? And I'm like, (laughs) I didn't think I could, you know? (laughs) And so that was kind of how... I I got to the agency. I find that it doesn't conflict precisely because of the maternity leave story, because I get bored. And if I was only an author, I would spend a lot of time playing solitaire (laughs) (laughs) and starting jewelry businesses and sewing scarves and crocheting kippahs. And this way, I'm just kept busy in the right way. So I, I keep busy on both sides of the coin. Sometimes I write and sometimes I read and sometimes I edit and sometimes I agent, you know, and it all gets into like a big mesh of things. And I definitely think my agenting life takes over more than my writing life. And that's because I'm a really good procrastinator. And so like, there's always things I can procrastinate with, like queries and editing and auctions. At this book, I actually took, there were two different weeks that I went to Highlights, which is like a, you know, a retreat center in Northern Pennsylvania, I think. I ended up like staffing a retreat there or whatever. And then like they they said, would you like a week to write? And I was like, yes, I would like a week to write. Um, And that actually was really good. And so I need to do more of that, though. This pandemic sort of made that impossible. Spending a week writing in a cabin, which leaves me free to then do my agenting stuff without the pressure of like, I have a book due. Oh, no, good. I spent a week in a cabin and I did. I edited the book. So I don't know. I don't know what things look like moving forward, but a, a, a diff- different varying combinations of that. Very cool. 
that's like a much kind of bigger and grander version of what I do, which is clean when I'm procrastinating from work. And at the end of the day, I do have a clean house, but not necessarily all my like emails and spreadsheets done. There's a famous quote, and I forget who it's by, but it says, women who have clean houses do not have finished books. <laughs> oh, no, I can rent <laughs> Shout <to film>. out. <laughs> so true. No, but I absolutely feel the, oh, I'm going to pick up a thing to procrastinate with because like, as you can see in my background, I've just been picking up embroidery. Just that's my nonstop. At the end of the day, I need something to do. Otherwise, I'll drive myself crazy. So I absolutely feel like, oh, I'm going to accidentally start a scarf business. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So now my accidentally is to be channeled into, I will accidentally read 100 query letters and find a new author I want to represent, which is a lot more productive. Not bad. And usually financially, you know, there's a financial record recompense to that instead of just like making scarves and trying to sell them on Etsy. (laughs) Rina, thank you again for coming on the show. I have so many reading recommendations and things I'm excited to Google. So can you just remind folks where they can pick up copies of your books or follow you online? So I'm most active on Twitter, which is just at Rena Rosner, R-E-N-A-R-O-S-S-N-E-R. I'm also on Instagram. I just don't like, I'm not so photogenic. So I'd like to take pictures of like Pablo, my dog, and food that I make, <laughs> but sometimes a picture of me here and there. And I'm also on Facebook and whatever, but really Twitter is the best place to follow me. Beyond that, you can find information how to query me on the Deborah Harris Agency website. I also have my own website, www.renarosner.com. And my book can be picked up wherever books are sold. I don't like recommending Amazon, but it is on there. <laughs> There's this new bookshop.com thing. Yes, we, or is it bookshop.org? bookshop.org. We have one. We are going to definitely link you. Don't worry. <laughs> and for people who don't live in the States, we usually buy our books from Book Depository, which has free shipping internationally, though it is an Amazon company. Mm. There's always compromises under capitalism. It happens. But you can't beat free international shipping. (laughs) And everyone can find links to those in the episode description of this episode. Amazing. Well, thank you again, everybody. Go check out Rena's books. And ultimately, remember, stay creepy. Stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Just $1 gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, directors, commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.